Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We have a real uh, gift and treat and special guest for you today, and that is um, author, pastor, pro-life advocate, Randy Alcorn. Many of you know that name by his um, very seminal book, Heaven. Uh, maybe you've read some of his novels, and maybe you know how involved he's been in the pro-life movement. But he's been a real blessing to me over the years and to the body of Christ and to the pro-life movement who have been pleading with the pastorate and the pulpit for decades to engage on this issue. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. Randy is an author and the founder and director of Eternal Perspective Ministries, or EPM, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching principles of God's Word and assisting the church in ministering to unreached, unfed, unborn, uneducated, unreconciled, and unsupported people around the world. His ministry focus is communicating the strategic importance of using our earthly time, short as it is, money, possessions, and opportunities to invest in need-meeting ministries that count for eternity, hence the eternal perspectives. He has a Bachelor of Theology and a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies from Multnomah University and an Honorary Doctorate from Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and is taught on the adjunct faculties of both. A New York Times bestselling author, Randy has written more than 50 books, including Heaven, The Treasure Principle, and the award-winning novel Safely Home. His books have sold more than 10 million copies and have been translated into more than 70 languages. Randy resides in Gresham, Oregon with his wife, Nancy, and has, of course, beautiful blessings, children and grandchildren. Stay tuned and buckle up. You're in for a treat. Randy, welcome to the show today. Thanks. Great to be with you, Seth. Absolutely. Really appreciate um, your faithful work on behalf of, of the preborn and all that you've done for, for the body of Christ in America. And uh, we wanted to have you on since I, I launched this podcast almost two years ago now and have been blessed with a studio and a new church family that is, has made these type of conversations possible. And so um, I, I want to start out with, with a compliment, firstly, just for you. And so our listeners understand um, how how impactful your ministry has been and how God has used you. Uh, you may have done more pro-life work than nearly any other pastor in the country today. Uh, and I say that as someone who grew up in the pro-life movement, as someone whose mother was the director of a pregnancy center while she was pregnant with me. Uh, at the, but then you've done that at the local level, the church level, and the academic level. Uh, you've seemingly left your pro-life footprint everywhere. And I believe many babies have been saved and many people activated and woken up to engage because of your faithfulness. So how did that happen to you? <laughs> and, and I guess I want, to, I want to ask you, why are you so unique among the pastorate? How did all this happen, and, and how did God grab your heart for life? Well, while I have not actually been uh, a pastor since 1990, I'm involved in the same church where I was a pastor and I have the opportunity to speak into the lives of my few of my closest friends are still pastors at mm. that very church. So that that still gives me uh, a, a voice. Uh, I was able to do the Sanctity of Human Life uh, weekend message this year again. <laughs> I keep telling awesome. them, that, you know, we, we need more variety here, but we've had other people over the years, but still. Uh, I, I think when I was a pastor, the key was um, I, I, we opened our home to uh, a 
young girl, teenage girl who was pregnant. And um, she placed her child for adoption. We helped her get into a Christian home. Turned out wow. she had had, we didn't know this at first, we learned later, she had already had two abortions at the largest abortion clinic in our state uh, called Lovejoy, which later sued us for $8.2 million. And I'm glad to say just within the last month, finally closed its doors after 15 Amen. years. Wow. So abortion was, uh, abortion was legal in, um, in Oregon uh, before it was, I mean, four years before Roe v. Wade. So, I mean, right. we're a, a, sadly a pioneer state in many bad things. Uh, some good yeah. things, too. So, I mean, I love being in Oregon, but still, uh, yeah. it's part of our heritage. And, and one of my big jobs early on when I volunteered at the first uh, pregnancy center that was in our town, uh, they came to me and they realized I was pro-life and I'd been preaching and talking about it. And they said, would you join our board? They had opened one clinic in Beaverton, wow. Oregon, in the suburb of Portland. They said, we want to open a second one. We'd love to have you on the board. So my job was to contact pastors and convince them that a pregnancy center, then called Crisis Pregnancy Center, was right. worth investing in as, as, as kind of a, a missionary community ministry thing. That's right. Well, you just can't imagine, Seth, uh, in those days, how foreign that was. Literally, there were 12 uh, pregnancy centers in the country. Of course, Catholics right. had birthright and all of that. But I mean, within evangelicalism, there were 12 in the entire country. And wow. this was the first in the Pacific Northwest. And so to try to convince pastors uh, of this being legitimate, but I have to say with all of the things that we can kind of regret about lack of progress in certain aspects of the pro-life movement, when I compare it to where it was then, the number of wow. churches who have Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and every year, and support their local pregnancy centers and sometimes right. their right to life organizations. It has exponentially expanded since those wow. early days. Yeah. So they approached you then, would this have been the 80s? While you right. Were still this was uh, early, right, early to mid 80s, yes. That's right. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And we know from, <clears throat> uh, from studies and statistics that pregnancy centers uh, have increased. Uh, I don't know, tenfold or more from the between the 80s and, and currently it's just absolutely exploded and my my mother was uh, became the director of a pregnancy center in Azusa California right by APU uh, in the probably mid 1980s uh, in her 20s and then remained as a director there until I was born in 1991 and even then there weren't nearly as many as what we see now so right. that's incredible, and, and yes, I'm, you know, unfortunately I'm aware of the, the tragic history of your state as it pertains to sort of the history of abortion. Uh, and you're right, kind of been on the breaking edge with California, my home state, uh, with, uh, with a, lot of, a lot of bad things. <laughs> so um, I, I really wanted you to, in as much length as you feel uh, in, comfortable doing, I wanted you to share your story about where God took you from there. I know that story. A lot of people don't know that story. In fact, uh, one of the only places online where I've heard 
Uh, a good segment of that story was your interview with Mark Driscoll from 10 years ago or more than that, or his interview of you. Um, but I, I, I think it's going to just bless people's socks off, and I would really love you to share as much of that as you feel comfortable sharing. But um, at, where did God take you from there in terms of your pro-life work? So you had been, you've, you'd housed pregnant women before. Um, you were involved with sidewalk counseling, and something pretty gnarly happened in 1989 or 1990. Uh, can you start from there and tell us that story? Well, um, God laid it on my heart to get involved in what was then called the rescue movement. It was not Operation Rescue. That was a specific organization. We weren't affiliated with them. But a group of people in Portland had started going down to do peaceful, nonviolent, civil disobedience at abortion clinics. Uh, there were sidewalk counselors and peaceful protesters. And my wife had been a sidewalk counselor. I had done peaceful protests. But this was actual civil disobedience standing between people coming into the abortion clinics uh, and the actual door of the clinic. So obviously what we were doing was illegal, um, civil disobedience. Uh, we kind of patterned it after the civil rights movement in some ways, just right. peaceful. And uh, But we're sending a message. We are the last line. We are intervening on behalf of unborn children. We're also intervening on behalf of the mothers who, without understanding what they were doing, were going to become guilty of killing their children. Uh, and sometimes fathers would come with them too, usually not. Yeah. Usually it was mother of the girl who was pregnant or a friend of the girl who was pregnant. But we just, you know, it was just our way of doing something. And uh, mm. it actually was remarkably effective in some ways because Planned Parenthood themselves said when any woman has an abortion appointment uh, appointment at an abortion clinic to take the life of their child uh, uh, if she is turned away for any reason it could be bad weather it could be loss of power at the clinic it could be protesters or rescuers but when she's turned away for any reason 25 percent of the time she never comes back to get an abortion and Planned wow. Parenthood was making that as their point of, see, so these people are ripping us off because we're losing all this business. And wow. we were going, thank you for giving us a reason to continue to do this. <laughs> it's wow. even more effective uh, than we're realizing because on wow. those days, uh, the Lovejoy, the largest abortion clinic in the state, was turning away. I mean, we were, as a result of our being there, there were 40 or 50 women coming in for abortions every Saturday. Uh, oh and, and what that means is, uh, you know, something like 10 or 12 women were being saved from the tragedy of abortion and obviously the lives of their children uh, yeah. were being saved. So I went to uh, the elders of my church, my fellow pastors. I had co-founded the church, myself and another pastor, uh, back in 1977. Uh, by now we're at 1989. And I went to them and said, you know, God has laid this on my heart. I know this is going to be controversial. I know you're probably not all going to agree. And they didn't all agree. But right. what they said was, Randy, if you believe in your conscience that this is what God wants you to do, if you think you have the leading of the Holy Spirit, uh, we have no right to stop you. Uh, God bless you. And we're just going to have to work to help pick up the pieces because let's just put it this way the rescue movement in other parts of the country and those of us who are old enough to remember what that was like some will understand if you were in dallas or atlanta or wichita or wherever um 
you, you have a, a fair amount of sympathy for you, hmm. your, you know, sure. that you were doing these things. In Oregon, there, there, you just could not imagine wow. having less sympathy for this and also not much sympathy even in the local churches. Now, in my church, because people oh, knew me, I was supported by many, many people, uh, and they ended up supporting our ministry when I had to uh, resign mm -hmm. as a pastor because of the lawsuits that came. Um, and uh, God bless them, and many of them changed their mind on it as time went on, that, that thinking that, that you know this was right. So to, in that story, what happened was I did that uh, nine times in, uh, in actually uh, 1990. Seven of those times was arrested, uh, where we went into wow. holding cells and all of that, was sentenced by a judge uh, to go to jail for a couple of days. Um, it was actually uh, two, uh, let's see, one night, parts of two days. And, um, and as a result uh, of that, they came to, uh, they filed lawsuits, several of them, and they came to garnish my wages from my church. And when that happened, and in the providence of God, I got the notification of the garnishment before our church did, because of all things, they came to serve the papers at the church on a Saturday, which was the only day of the week no one was at the church. Every other wow. day of the week, you know, our offices were open, Sundays were having services, but they came on a Saturday, and I got the notification that it was papers were being served to my employer for garnishment of wages. And so I had a special meeting with the uh, pastors and the elders on that Sunday, said, I'm resigning, pay me what you owe me up to this day, and then they can't garnish my wages because you will not owe me anything, and I am now resigning as wow. a pastor. So that, and if you would have asked me, Seth, uh, even in 1989, uh, 1990, because uh, it was 90, 1990 when I finally had to resign, if you would have asked me, what do you think you're going to be doing 40 years from now? <laughs> I would have said, probably about time to retire as a pastor at this church. I had no wow. intention of not being a pastor, no intention right. of not leading the church, but suddenly and dramatically, it was my pastoral ministry was over, and I've never wow. done it since. But I have uh, been maintained my involvement in our church. So God's wow. been good. So what was the, um, obviously, for anyone who knows your story, it was a completely farcical lawsuit. But explain a little bit about um, how they justified um, their action against you. And specifically, what was the, uh, the penalty, the consequence? Um, I think I've heard you mention uh, something along the lines of 25% of your income for the rest of your life? Or can you can you explain exactly what yes, happened? Yes, that's the way uh, garnishment works, at least in the state of Oregon, uh, is that, uh, that they can um, they can garnish 25% of your income until you pull off, I mean, until they are able to acquire the full uh, amount from me uh, and or me plus other defendants. Well, the first time it was... The lawsuit was for $2,500 for the 10 abortions we had prevented that day at oh the smaller clinic. And so, I mean, the price tag on each abortion. So for every baby's life that was saved, 
they wanted to be paid $250. Abortions were less expensive in those days. And um, so, so that's how it works. So what that meant was they could then come and garnish my wages from the church. The only solution to that was for me to no longer be employed by the church. We started our own ministry. But then, uh, by Oregon state law, uh, nothing can be garnished if it's a minimum wage. And mm. so, for the next 20 years, I made minimum wage. And so, wow. as a result of that, now, the, the ministry found other ways to, you know, like uh, somebody donated a car to the ministry, and then uh, we could use the car, and the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do ministry, and the ministry would even pay for the gas and the repairs. So, you know, it wasn't really just minimum wage, but officially sure. it was minimum wage. And my wa- wife wow. was able to work part time for hmm. the ministry as well in the beginning. But those were challenging days. But God brought great things. I mean, it was really set that was a Genesis fifty twenty uh, situation. Uh, Joseph to his brothers, you intended this for evil. But God intended it for good. And interestingly, in that case, it was to save many lives. This is exactly what happened because one of the first things was I had way more time to write and I could actually make writing part of my job description. So the first thing I did was write my first pro-life book called Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. That book has sold something like 200,000 copies over the years, but that book then became the the training manual widely Mm -hmm. used by various pro-life groups across the country. And it was such a, a blessing that God Amen. In fact, the uh, as a senior in high school, when I did my senior project on abortion at Whittier High School in LA County, I um, volunteered at the Center for Bioethical Reform, uh, which which you're aware of. And, and Greg Cunningham I, is actually officially my godfather. My my mother asked him to be my I godfather. I did not know that. Yeah, shortly before she passed the cancer in 2015. So Greg and Lois Cunningham are actually my godparents, and we just moved from San Clemente to Thousand Oaks. Um, but the Cunninghams live in Dana Point, right next to San Clemente in South Orange County. And obviously they've been absolute behemoths in the pro-life movement. But my, my first week uh, as an intern there, my senior year of high school, to do my volunteer hours for my senior project, um, my, um, admin, my, I guess my mentor put a copy of Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments in my hands, along with The Caves for Life by my, my now boss, Scott Klusendorf, and said, read this. Um, and you're right, that, that book has been absolutely invaluable. Um, I wanted you to maybe share a little bit more, and then I want to talk to you about some of your work, of course, but I wanted you to share a little bit about how God used that lawsuit in incredible ways. I mean, you, you talked about how some pastors and local churches' hearts were finally warmed um, to the unborn child, to that orphan doomed to die, as well as to your pro-life work. But could you tell us exactly what went down in that courtroom? Um, I've read some of you unpack it before, but I mean, this is this was some spiritual warfare, to put it lightly, real demonic forces that were at work. And, and some of what you might share, it's hard for people to even believe that a judge um, would behave in the way that this one did. But can you tell us a little bit about what followed uh, in that lawsuit um, before you were forced to take a minimum wage in order to not um, uh, pay the abortion industry? 
Right. Well, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty crazy, Seth. Uh, the things that happened in that courtroom in that month, it was a full month trial, four week trial, Monday through Friday, uh, were truly amazing. Um, we, we had, um, a judge who, uh, was incredibly hostile toward us in the courtroom and would uh, sit there when we were testifying. Our lawyer was, you know, asking us, why are we doing this and all this case stuff? He would read the Oregonian, one of the most um, unsympathetic newspapers in the country to anything <laughs> pro-life. But uh, he would read the newspaper. You could not see his face. I mean, I don't mean, lots of times judges are reading their mail and they're, you know, while this is all going on and all, but at least they're being a little bit subtle about it. Whereas he literally wow. would cover his face. He's reading the newspaper, sending the message to the jury. I'm totally disinterested in this. I don't believe him. No reason that you should or whatever. But uh, one day I will never forget uh, is when a pastor, Tom Baker, uh, who was then pastor of Portland Four Square Church, uh, Tom was testifying, and he, he wasn't involved in the rescuing the civil disobedience, but he had come to several rescuers, uh, rescues and had be, uh, observed the behavior of the rescuers. So our attorney called him up to just testify how, how did they behave, and, and, which was very positively, respectfully, no yelling and screaming, no pulling hair, no spitting on women, no using foul language. That was just... Those were all things that the clinic would claim that just simply were not really? true. So this wow. is testify. I mean, yeah, under oath. And one of the things that hit me with that was, you know what? Why should it surprise me that people who kill babies for a living would be willing to lie under oath? Exactly. That's right. I mean, why not? Exactly. You know, that's actually a much smaller thing. Than yeah. Killing <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so uh, this particular day, uh, when when Tom is up there and he's you know giving his testimony, the judge interrupts him, gets part way out of his seat, and says, "How dare you come into my courtroom and and tell lies and, and all this kind of stuff?" And we're going, I mean, Whoa. this guy is a mild mannered, truth telling, I mean, full of grace and truth, pastor. Now, right. I wouldn't say all pastors are full of grace and truth, but this one was, you know, yeah. and I say that as somebody who loves pastors and has been a pastor and all of right. that. But there is, I mean, there is, there was nothing provocative about him at all. And the judge is mm. screaming at him. I don't wow. mean the judge is being firm. I don't mean the judge is just raising his voice a little. I mean, he's actually yelling and screaming Wow. At somebody that's on the witness stand. Okay. Wow. Now, uh, the, uh, numbers of other things happened. Um, but one of the things I did that day was I called uh, Frank Peretti, who's a good friend, and I said, so Frank, and he had been following things related to the trial and all that. And I said, so Frank, look, you, you and this was back in the days when he only had uh, his first two novels out. Uh, this present darkness and piercing the darkness, all this spiritual warfare stuff. 
that right. thus took the evangelical world by storm. Those hmm. books selling millions of copies, you know. Anyway, so uh, I said, so Frank, this is what happened. And it was like a scene out of one of your novels in terms of the wow. spiritual warfare. The only thing is, you actually couldn't put this in a book because no editor would let you get away with that because it's <laughs> so over the top and ridiculous because judges don't do that. Right. They don't do totally. that. Wow. Right. And yet he did. And, wow. and how do you explain that? I mean, I, I think you mm. explain it by the demonic influence. Uh, you, you, it's, it's John eight. Um, mm. The devil's a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer. He's the father of lies. He kills. He murders to cover his lies. The truth is not in him. When he lies, right. he says, this is NIV, and I love this translation. It's very true to the original. When he lies, he speaks his native language. That's right. In other words, you know, like if you speak a second language, you're never as good at it. You know, <laughs> when it's your native language. That's what you're wow. always best, you know, at. Well, that's his native language. He is, and there's there's no goodness in him, but wow. he is good in the sense of being very effective, right? In his lies, and and I think when people buy into the lies of the realm of darkness, unbelievable hmm. things happen that can't be explained by just normal human sinfulness. Right. It, it it goes up a level or down the level to the demonic presence. And just while I'm thinking of it, I'll just give you one more example in that regard. Please. Uh, we were standing across the street one day and in a, uh, a protest, not a rescue. So we weren't doing civil disobedience. We were standing across the street from Lovejoy, this, this big uh, clinic. And uh, my wife and my daughters uh, were together. And we had three very large photographs uh, of the uh, intrauterine photographs. So we're talking about live preborn children, not aborted babies, yeah. but but live uh, unborn children at, in each of the trimesters. And my youngest daughter was holding one, and then my uh, oldest daughter, just two of them, holding another, mm. and my wife was holding the third, and, and there were no words under it. It's just obvious this this, this is yeah your baby looks like one of these hey, you know um and um this this big black limo slows down comes up to us and we're on a street corner across the street from the abortion clinic slows down and a gray-haired man in the passenger seat uh, makes a vile gesture which takes no imagination to figure out what it is pressed up against the window toward the closest one to him, maybe no more than four feet away, standing wow. on the sidewalk, is my youngest daughter. Second closest to him, my next daughter. Third closest to him, my wife, and then me. And makes this vile gesture and holds that as they turn the corner so everyone can see what he thinks of us. Now, right. I'm sure it was to everyone else also, but because we were at that exact spot where the limo stopped, where yeah. he first did that, we were closest to it. So now, again, if I write novels, I would not put that in a novel. The reason I wouldn't put it in the novel was 
who it actually was. The mayor of the city of Portland. No way. His name is Bud Clark. You can look him up. And that was Bud Clark. The mayor wow. of Portland <laughs> is flipping the bird to my little girls. Wow. All for the cause of killing unborn children. He is making vile gestures to born children. Yeah, that's right. Don't put that in a novel. No wow. one would believe it. And the reason that I, the reason why I believe things like that happen, Randy, and I'm sure you would agree, and I say this a lot on, on this show, is that because for the left, abortion is actually their greatest sacrament. So disrespecting abortion to the left on a moral playing field is, is kind of like respecting the Bible for Christians. I mean, this, this is not a rival politics, it's a rival religion, right? Christ right. says, I must die so you can live. Abortion says, you must die so I can live. And as Mother Teresa once said, if a mother can kill her own child, what is left for us but to kill one another? In other words, if you can maintain the sacrament of abortion, you can justify everything else, including lies, like you just said. I want you to share one other thing, and then I had I wanted to ask you some questions about one of your other books. But um, you talked about once the territorial nature of demons, and and you believed that while the demons were in the courtroom, because people were suing a pro-life pastor who never did anything violent or rude, um, trying to take twenty five percent of your income to fund abortions, while the demons were in that courtroom, maybe they weren't at the near, nearest abortion clinic. And maybe that opened the eyes of some people who worked in those doors of death. What, what, uh, what do you want to share about that? Yeah, well, there were, uh, I think, about 25 of us who were being sued. So I was with this fairly large group of, of other people. So it wasn't just about me, but it was definitely about us and uh, the clinic, the Lovejoy Clinic. All right. So and, and it called Lovejoy because in case anybody wonders, that just was the name of the street. Uh, but. Uh, no, no abortion clinic has been more ironically named. Yeah, <laughs> clinic. Um, but, but anyway, uh, what first got me thinking about this was I heard two reports from people who had gone down to do sidewalk counseling at the abortion clinic while the trial was going on. One of them said, "Okay, one of the abortion clinic workers walked out and was." extremely distraught and told me she had quit and she wasn't coming back. And a lot wow. of site counselors get to know, they develop relationships right. with staff members, the clinics and all of that. And it's usually fairly hostile on the abortion clinic side of it, but you know, that's the way it works. But this woman said, this is it. I'm not coming back. And they said, Why? And she says, because I was in there. Actually, this was, this was not like a receptionist. This wasn't a doctor, but it was perhaps a nurse who was assisting, but doing something medical. Hmm. All of a sudden, we were doing an abortion, and it dawned on me, we're actually killing a child. I'm looking. This isn't the first time she'd seen the, the toes and the fingers and the head and the limbs. Right. I, but she just said, it suddenly dawned on me. We're killing children. She says, that's it. I'm never coming back. About, I don't know, maybe a week later, but still in that month, that window, while it's going on, another clinic um, staff member resigned and, and uh, walked away uh, and just uh, wow. not going to do this anymore and all of that. Well, we were not aware of that 
having happened on certainly on, on a regular basis, not just two wow. within really a week of each other. Wow. So I started thinking, now, isn't it ironic that there are fewer of us out there than usual at the clinic? So you couldn't explain it by, oh, there's more people at the clinic doing sidewalk counseling or whatever. There's, there was actually less. There were a few. Right. But less than usual because so many of the people who did it were in the courtroom. They're tied up in court. So I'm thinking, so Lord, why would that happen? And that it just it's just all like a light turned on. Because if you look at Daniel 10, you you see Daniel 9 and 10, but you, you see these accounts of these um angels, one's called uh the the and they're fallen angels, uh the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. And it says, and he says, uh, when you pray, Daniel, uh, Michael, the archangel, restrain uh, the uh, one of these demons who is called the prince of uh, of Greece and, or prince of Persia, mm. and, and uh, as a result, um, your prayer was answered, but they were there were there were people. Basically, angels in conflict, fighting over this. But the thing that's so striking is, if if this this demonic archangel, so to speak, is the prince of Persia, it means that they have others under them, armies of demons, and and that fits with other things we see in Scripture. Of course, it makes perfect sense. The 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 righteous angels have a structure of authority, Archangel Michael, all of that, and right. so would the fallen angels. So what hit me was, okay, so if you have the prince of Persia that's over these other Persian demons assigned to Persia, doesn't it make sense that certain demons are uh, assigned to certain locations for certain purposes? So mm. let's just say there's, you know, because there's a limited number of demons. There's not an infinite number of demons. I mean, right. demons can only be one place at one time. They're finite, all right? So let's say there's um, a few dozen demons. I have no idea. But a few dozen demons that are assigned to this abortion clinic. Mm. Well, what happens then when this abortion clinic is in this major battle with a group of pro-lifers? So, well... I would think that the demonic warriors would relocate to the courtroom, which is exactly what we were sensing. That's exactly wow. what we were sensing. But they didn't come from nowhere. Right. They probably came from the uh, the clinic. I'm speculating, but I do have a biblical grounds to a degree to yeah. base that speculation on. So why did people wake up? You know, those two employees in that one-week period, and who knows how many others could have that we never heard about. Why did they wake up? Well, because the demons who are liars were absent, or at least they're in fewer number. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I I actually believe that to this day. I don't think that's a stretch. And by the way, speaking of Frank Peretti, we had further conversations, and he came out and met with, uh, a group of people from the Lovejoy that had done work, uh, as, as I and others had, at the Lovejoy Clinic and in our living room, women who had had abortions, they told their stories. Uh, so, uh, two people who had worked at the clinic, a doctor who had performed abortions, and all of that, that God had 
brought out of that background and, and, and brought to faith in Christ, and they're in our living room. Well, then uh, Frank and, and his wife, Barb, were staying with us a couple of days. So then the next day I said, hey, do you want to go down and actually see this clinic? Well, he was writing a third novel, which ended up uh, having the name Prophet. And that novel, still worth reading to this day, that was, you know, it was back in the early 90s when all this was mm. uh, going on. But uh, it is based at, uh, a central part of it is an abortion clinic. And that abortion clinic is the Lovejoy Abortion Clinic. Uh, wow. And I, I mean, to a T. And by the way, you said something about like um, earlier about like, like almost uh, offering sacrifice, something that made me think of that anyway. He, uh, uh, Frank and I are standing across the street from Lovejoy, and here is an altar, a New Age altar, and there was fresh meat that had been put, an animal sacrifice uh, that had been put there. And my wife, Nancy, when I told her about it, oh, yeah, she, she'd done the sidewalk house for years. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a pagan altar over there, and they'll put these little sacrifices out there. Oh my gosh. Wow. <sighs> the high places, I guess. Um, Randy, I want you to put a, a bookend on the genesis of EPM, everything you just talked about and how this led you to launch Eternal Perspective Ministries. You mentioned, <clears throat> of course, the Daniel, uh, or, or rather the Joseph line of what uh, you meant for evil, brothers, God meant for good for the saving of lives. Um, and I think that's so beautifully put and applied and obviously providential in God's sovereignty in your life and on your ministry. But you, in launching Eternal Perspective Ministries, you had to make a decision, you and your family, um, a financial one, in order to ensure that the abortion industry saw none of your money. Uh, can you tell us what that decision was? Because I think it's just going to bless people. Yeah, that was to uh, the ministry would not pay me any more than minimum wage. Therefore, there would be uh, by Oregon state law, which was paying off for us for once. Uh, they wouldn't be able to uh, garnish uh, uh, my wages as long as I made minimum wage. So that's what we did. We did that for 10 years. The judgment was supposed to, uh, from the abortion clinic was supposed to expire after 10 years. So then we thought we'd be uh, free to, uh, you know, make a, a more of a normal wage. But yeah. then somehow the abortion clinic managed to get a court decision to extend that judgment for another 10 years because they had been so unsuccessful in collecting, wow. uh, you know, wow. not just from me. They hadn't collected anything and never did from me. And and some people they collected a little from, but they, they didn't get they, they didn't nearly cover their courtroom expenses. They had high-powered wow. lawyers and a number of them. Um, we had one, and um, and uh, and he was not paid nearly as much as they were. Uh, so it didn't pay off for for um, the clinic. But but what really uh, happened with this, um, Seth, was that uh, be, we made the decision. Okay, yeah, we're only going to make minimum wage. But we had also made a decision earlier that to make sure my book royalties were never garnished. Right. Um, we got input from different people saying it's pretty hard from the garnish book royalties, but yes, it's been done. They could possibly. We didn't want to make it possible at all. So what we did was all royalties went to our ministry and then 100% of them, our ministry gave away. 
Uh, now, because our ministry of the board talked me into this, I don't know, five years ago or whatever it was, hey, our ministry is also a Christian ministry. Could 10% of it be, go to our Christian ministry to help us do the work? You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's still all yeah, yeah. 100% going to Christian ministry and we're yeah. just 10% out of that. Well, anyway, wow. so that's what we did. And that's what was done until I told you the story about after 10 years, uh, but, but I'll tell you this part of it, the board said, look, 10 years is coming up now, Randy. All this money should come to you. You wrote those books. You and Nancy deserve the royalties and all that. So Nancy and I sat down together and we decided, you know what? Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, in other words, God has been providing for us all these years. Right. We do not, we don't need this money. And it's a lot of money, but we don't need it. Because uh, yeah. God's providing, what could be better? How could we get more joy than the joy we've experienced in having this money go all mm. over the world in missions projects, supporting pro-life work, supporting gospel missionary work and getting people out of sex trafficking and doing all the great wow. things that it was doing. So we decided, no, we're not going to take it. It's still going to go to the ministry. We're still going to give it all away. A week later we get the information that the abortion clinic got it extended 10 more years. So wow. God, so if we had switched it back to us, wow. we would have had to turn around and go through, and it might not even been easy to do it, to reverse wow. that. But in any case, um, God gave us the grace of being able to make the decision ourselves. No, this is where we wanted to go. And by the way, now that 20 years is... Uh, even long past by now. And uh, we uh, we still don't take any of the royalties because wow. once again, why should we? Now, now the ministry yeah. is able to pay us a good wage. Yeah. But I mean, the, the royalties are way more than I'm paid. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah. We're just, I mean, it's, it's now over 11 million uh, copies of the books that have sold and uh, it's a lot of royalties. And uh, we're so grateful that it goes to God's work. Wow. Praise God. And for you guys listening to this, I just want to say the statement because Randy might not say this himself. Um, you would be a multimillionaire. Um, and so the work that you've been able to, um, the way that God's been able to use your faithfulness to bless others, both saving um, immediate lives, like out of sex trafficking in the unborn, but also eternal souls in the kingdom of God because of the, um, what your uh, generosity has enabled other ministries to do. I, I, I don't think we'll be able to be calculated until we're in heaven. And that reminds me of, I'm sure, one of our favorite quotes from Jim Elliott. Uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Um, I want to make a statement, and then with a few minutes left, I want to ask you something else, Randy. But let me know if you think this is accurate. It's almost as if the entire fruit of your ministry is a result of your faithfulness to defend the unborn child. I've, I've never thought of it in those terms, um, Seth, but I guess historically. Um, you know, there definitely could be um, truth in that. And uh, certainly uh, God did amazing things. He did amazing things in the lives of our children, uh, people at my church. Not a lot, but I remember one elder's wife who said, have you ever thought about what this, um, the negative impact this is having on your children? Have you, have you ever thought about your kids? You know, and, my, and of course, my 
my uh, human response would be, oh, no, I never think about the welfare of my children, but thank you for looking out for them. No, <laughs> I did not say that. Uh, but, but, but I did think it. Uh, but, but, um, but what hit me was, and, and this is part of the story, too, that I, I didn't tell, but the night before that um, four-week trial started, where we pretty much knew we were going to lose in the state of Oregon, we're, we're just not going to, uh, when this, we didn't know that the the judge would give a directed verdict. He said right. at the end of the trial, for those who don't know what a directed verdict is, this will sound weird, uh, but the judge said to the jury, you must find these defendants guilty. You do Whoa. don't have an option of finding them not guilty. And you must come up with enough money, uh, you know, financial charges so that they would, you know, never do this again. But anyway, so the night before, I get a call from my attorney. I thought, well, he's just checking in, whatever. And he says, uh, Randy, I don't know how to tell you this, but the abortion clinic called me today, I mean, just within the last hour, to say they want to drop you from the case. You are no longer a defendant in this case. Really? He says, but they did it so late that you therefore... Uh, at, because it's last minute, you have to agree to it. He says, obviously, everybody with a brain agrees to it because no, nobody wants to be hammered in a lawsuit. Right. You know, so it's starting to go, well, gosh, what will we do with the next month? That'll be fun. <laughs> we didn't know how long the trial would be, but you don't all, and wow, and then all of the thing, and then I'm going, so Bill, why would, would they draw me? He says, oh, to be honest, I think they're doing it because they know you have a platform. They know you're a pastor. They know you're able to communicate with the media and sound semi-rational. <laughs> and, hmm. and so um, I think they just don't want you. They don't want you on the stand. They don't want you speaking on behalf of the defendants or, or whatever. So I go, I get off the phone. I say, let me talk with my family and I'll call you back. So we sit down and I say, hey, here's the deal. Um they want to drop us. What hmm. do you think? Before my wife responds, uh, my oldest daughter, who was uh, Karina, who was 11 years old at the time, and Angela, her sister, was nine, says, Dad, uh, I think if the abortion clinic wants to drop you from the case, God wants you to stay on it. Wow. Well, we explained that this could mean that they could no longer go to their Christian school that our church had. This could mean we would lose our house, the only house they had ever known. And uh, so um, that was a pretty big deal. And they knew that. And she is saying wow. this in full face of that. And wow. so do you, we prayed about it. Do you really feel good about this? this? Is the right thing to do? And of course, we didn't feel good about it in one way, but right. we felt great about it in another way because we're doing what we believe was God's will. And I think for my children to make that kind of sacrifice, potentially. Now, we didn't lose our home, and they were still able to go to their church school. Some wow. anonymous person gave for their tuition for the following Amazing. years, and, you know, and God took care of them, as God always does. But um, that's one of the things I look at is what happened in my children's life. And I'm going to tell one more story about my youngest daughter, Angela. When mm. she was 17, so now we're talking, what, eight years later. Right. We're out on a bike ride. 
And uh, we go into this new development that's actually a gated community. Well, we never had a gated community uh, uh, anywhere near us. And this wasn't mm. like right next door, but we, this is in some places it's common. It's not in Oregon. It's at least our part of Oregon. It's not common at all. Right. And so naturally the, the gates up, but we're on our bikes. So what do we do? We just ride around the gates. So we're going in there because we're just looking at this building project. Like it was the nicest housing we had ever seen yeah. in the greater Portland area. We're, we're driving backward and here's this house. You know, this would have been in uh, nine, the mid 1990s, say. Um, and here's a house and it's gorgeous. And the price tag is half a million dollars, $500,000. Now, you being from California and anybody being from certain parts <laughs> of the country, you just it would be like a house selling for half a million dollars is not a strange thing. Where we live in our part of Oregon uh, all those years ago was way over the top, twice as much as most new houses easily. So right. huge square footage, view of mountains, it's got all these things. So wow. I look at that, and, and my daughter is saying, is this the most beautiful house you've ever seen, Dad, and all this? And I looked at that price tag, $500,000, and I said, Ange, did you know that more money in royalties than this came in in the last year? And if we'd kept it, we could have paid cash for this house, and it, will be, and it would be ours right now. Wow. And then I said, do you wish we would have done that? Well, Angie, knowing where all the money goes to all these right. great causes all over the world, laughs at me and says, Dad, are you kidding? It's just a house. Wow. And then I thought. From a teenager. <laughs> I, think, wow. I, think, I think my daughters uh, don't <laughs> feel bad about where all that money went and all yeah. the things we could have had and all the luxury wow. vacations and all the condos everywhere we could have owned. They wow. were not deprived. God provided. That's right. That's right. Yeah, cuz when when you're you're faithful with the little uh, God will give make you uh, give you much to be faithful with. Um, Randy, as we, as we close out here, and it's just such a blessing to have you share that story. I, I, I don't think I've found it in its entirety anywhere yet, and I, I really wanted that to bless people, especially at this propitious political moment we find ourselves in. Um, 48 years of legalized abortion, coming off of the most pro-life administration in American history with the most pro-abortion administration now in American history that makes Barack Obama look like a pro-choice pragmatic moderate, frankly. Um, and all of these political winds changing that will and are impacting the lives of unborn children and families and really the soul of the republic itself, um, we find ourselves in a situation similar to what Winston Churchill um, said, that when great forces are on the move in the world, uh, we learn that we're spirits and not animals, and that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. Um, and, you know, Churchill was not a born-again believer, to my knowledge, and yet recognized that something was going on in space and time, and it spelled duty. Well, he was talking about a Holocaust, and we have a Holocaust here in America, and, and you once said that, you know, we, um, we responded disgust at those who tolerated a German Holocaust um, while we're blind to our tolerance of our own here. So I, I wanted to set all that up, Randy, to, to ask you this question and get your thoughts. What would you say to the pastor in America today who faithfully preaches the word of God, robustly handles cultural issues from a biblical worldview, 
accepts the inerrancy and infallibility of scriptures, but does as little to end abortion today as most German churches did to end the Holocaust then. And I'm not talking about your woke pastor who's preaching critical race theory from the pulpit. I think we should uh, essentially uh, call that what Bonhoeffer would call that a cheap grace, a rival religion, a Jesus made in your own image. I'm talking about the pastor who faithfully preaches the word of God, who calls himself pro-life and gives the pregnancy center director five minutes to share about her ministry once a year and then says, I'm super pro-life but does as little to end abortion as most German churches did to end the Holocaust. What, what is your word to pastors today in America on this issue? I would say uh, go back to God's word. Look at all of those pastors in the Psalms, the prophets um, that talk uh, about justice, um, that say speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, who qualifies more as someone who cannot speak up for themselves than unborn children? I mean, at least you could say when it comes to some things, racial justice, and I'm a big believer in racial justice, but uh, at least you'd say that person ha has a mind and a voice and an ability to speak up for themselves. So let's us speak up for the, the, the weak and vulnerable person too. But who is literally without a voice that's a human being and uh, unborn children um and uh, and i think for a pastor to look at all those passages i have uh, at our website and i'm sure you've got lists of this but passage after passage after passage about god how precious children are how god values children and you see jesus telling his disciples Allow the children to come to me. They are precious. You must become like a child to enter yeah. the kingdom of God. Um, Psalm 139, all of the, the different passages that are so overwhelmingly pro-life. And then say, when you realize that that and the theme of, of justice and the vulnerable and the strangers and the aliens and the widows and the orphans, who job is it to speak up for them? And if you don't conclude that it is the church's job, mm. then something is badly wrong and you and, and I or anyone will be held accountable for this at the judgment seat of Christ. We, mm. we will give an answer for what we have done with the church God entrusted to our care. Right. And, uh, you know, and that could sound like, oh, you're trying to scare uh, pastors? Well, maybe. I mean, I could, there's passages in Scripture that scare me. Right. Uh, you will be held accountable in that day for every careless word you have spoken. I don't like that. <laughs> and, and, and if I was given a vote, I'd probably vote against that one being the Bible. But you know what? I don't vote against anything that's in the Bible because it is right. the inspired word of God. Right. And so to pastors, and I know so many of them, and I know so many that are very actively pro-life, I would also add this. Don't just give the platform over even for a full sanctity of Human Life Sunday where others are bringing the message. You bring the message, and furthermore, you actually volunteer even if it's for hmm. one year yeah you, you yourself for a pro-life ministry or if you can't do that i get that 
pastors can't volunteer for every ministry, but at least go down with your people who volunteer there. Say, show me what you are doing. I want to have vested interest in it because sometimes, you know what, if you don't actually do it, if you don't see it firsthand, if you don't go to the pregnancy center banquets that happen every year and all that, if right. you don't do that, you'll never have vested interest in this. And if you don't have vested interest in doing this, you'll never be persuasive of other people doing it. If mm, the shepherd wow. doesn't go there, the sheep are not going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Final question, Randy. To what extent, brother, do you believe um, abortion and the church's tolerance of modern-day child sacrifice has prevented um, us from experiencing another revival in America? So last Great Awakening and revival, Billy Graham uh, dwindling out, right, I believe in the 1970s. Roe versus Wade, 1973, state-sanctioned abortion through point of birth, funded by the public dole, and you're a bigot if you call it anything but reproductive health care. The church has allowed it. Francis Schaeffer once said, every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. He later went on to say that if the church can't speak out against something as evil as killing a baby, then the world has the right to ask whether Christ is real. Um, are you sensing the seeds of revival? Are you seeing pastors wake up? And do you think that God will move and bless a people or a country through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit as long as we continue to tolerate this in a, in a self-governance constitutional republic where we're more responsible for the direction of the country because we wield more political power? Well, I know people say sometimes, Seth, that they're afraid that you know, if abortion, abortion doesn't stop, uh, we're going to come under the judgment of God. Well, the fact is we have been under the judgment of God for some time. Right. Uh, the question is, will it continue uh, and will it get worse? And the answer, I believe, is I don't God does, is not going to look the other way. If the if the blood of righteous Abel was crying up to hmm. God from the ground, uh, surely the blood of whatever the figure now is 60 million children or whatever killed by abortion in America and however many in the world yeah. uh, at large, uh, God has brought judgment, is bringing judgment and will bring judgment. However, he can also bring blessing when we repent and when we change and, you know, whatever happens, it's up to him. But we just need to remember that a lot of us, are clinging to our own rights. And I get it. I believe in Christian civil liberties. I believe the state should not be telling the church what to do in a lot of these areas. I, I, I get all of that. But sometimes we become, and we start sounding like we're whining like one more special interest group in the church. I think I see some pastors and some Christian leaders who are finally standing up for rights, but it's our rights. It's our mm. rights to get what we want. It's our rights to be able to preach as we want, assemble as we want, and it's about our rights. Now, yeah, speak up for our rights. I get that. I'm not saying that's bad, but what I'm saying it's really missing is I think our voice would have a lot more credibility if we were standing up for the rights of the poor and vulnerable and needy and the mm. unborn children really um, epitomize that, that, yeah. that category. So I think if we 
stand up for unborn children, God may choose in his grace and kindness to at least lessen or mitigate the judgment Mm -hmm. upon us. Um, If we truly and fully turn around, I think he would bring outright blessing for that. But I do know this. Each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. And I'm, of course, talking Christians, even though a lot of Christians go, oh, yeah, but God will never be judged for anything because that's all taken care of in Christ. And, of course, that's true in terms of our salvation, but it's not true in terms of reward. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and I'll end with this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, the gift of God, not by works lest anyone should boast. And I've had people tell me, God, God doesn't care about your works. He doesn't care about what you do. It's just your heart. You're saved by grace. It's not about your works. Okay, right. well, that's all true until that point where it says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. For what? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good <laughs> works which he prepared for us in advance that Mm. we should do them. And God does care about our good works, and in particular, good works in Scripture is speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. It's not the only thing we can do, but it is right at the top Mm. of the list. And I think God will bless us if we do stand up. Wow. Amen. Thank you, Randy. Well, thank you so much, brother. That was such an encouragement. Um, you guys, go check out Eternal Perspective Ministries if you if you haven't already. Um, please read Randy's book, Heaven, if you want to know what it looks like to live in the light of eternity, to have an eternal perspective. And I think it's fair to say for everyone listening to this that when we stand before Christ uh, one day, uh, shoulder to shoulder with Randy Alcorn, uh, we shall look at his crown uh, as he lays it down at the feet of Christ and say, wow, what a crown that is because he who is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose and i'm excited to see your diamonds in your crown uh one day brother for the way that you have given everything god has given you right back to him and how god has used that incredibly so thank you so much for blessing us today Uh, you're welcome seth and i would add to that too that when i think of the faithful behind the scenes people that never make the newspapers good or bad I think of sidewalk counselors at that abortion clinic over that 50-year period. One man who, when he was 99 years old, Doc Height, who would still go out there in his wheelchair and hold a sign saying, stop abortion, stop child killing, uh, call this number, we will help you place your child for adoption. Amen. 99 years old in a wheelchair on rainy, cold Oregon days down at an abortion clinic year after year after year. And I think of all the behind the scenes people doing those and they're the ones who it will be my privilege to serve under them as they're ruling over five cities or one city. And then I have a place of responsibility and God's grace under them. Um, And I look forward to that. What a beautiful picture. Well, uh, guys from Randy Alcorn uh, from uh, 
who Seth Gruber believes is pro, um, quite possibly the most pro-life pastor in the country or former pastor. Um, if you guys want to bring that type of faithfulness to your city, again, as I always tell you, go check out lovelife.org forward slash America, the group that I partner with to get a Christian witness rallied outside every abortion clinic in the country every day, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. And Randy has been epitomizing that spirit for uh, longer than we probably even had the term sidewalk counselors. Thank you, Randy, for joining us today. Uh, blessings you, to you, and we'll see you again. And thanks for what you do. Thanks for this program. Uh, I've listened to it. I've enjoyed it, and um, I really appreciate what you do. Thank you, brother. Right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give this show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. If you want to support us to help us reach more people, expand our content, and begin creating interactive, conversational content on the streets to put these ideas in a conversational context, then consider supporting the show at patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Uh, pick one of our fun tiers so you get some exciting perks in return, and you help us reach more people to change more minds, change more hearts, and save more lives. If you want to learn more or book me for an event, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com. Sign up for my newsletter, view my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local. And we are grateful for you tuning in today. Go follow Randy Alcorn. We will leave links to his books and his ministry in the show description. And we'll see you back next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Oh, 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 o